Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, once again, we have an opportunity to spend some time together as family and in the Word of God. This will be the last day of our scripture uh, in 1 John 4, 15 to 19. And then June is going to start uh, on Monday, although June started yesterday. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Brother Dan, take it away. Hello, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you guys one more day. This is our final time together. And I just want to begin by saying thank you so much to everybody. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for offering such kind and encouraging words uh, when you're sharing in uh, the chats and, and in the Q&A portion. And I also want to just say a special thank you to Pastors Jason and Lori and Rhonda, whom I affectionately refer to as SIS, uh, and to all the leadership of, uh, of HeartStrong. Thank you so much um, for the invitation and being able to participate with everybody these past four mornings. I also want to thank, uh, I know, I'm not sure if I know everybody who's involved on the tech side of things. Uh, there's been different people each morning, but thank you all of you so much for all that you do. It really helps it go smoothly and I uh, really value that. And um, last but not least, I want to thank my big brother, Jay, who I lovingly refer to as, brah, love you, brah. Thank you for hosting every morning, Jay. Really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. If you can this morning, while we get going, if you would just say a quiet prayer in your heart for me, my, my throat is, uh, I'm praying, is going to hold up here. So I apologize if it gets a little, uh, a little scratchy. For the past three days, we've been considering uh, a few of the big picture issues that relate uh, more to the Old Testament in terms of a, a, a providing a framework in a way of approaching Scripture and focusing on these key issues, we've done that more than focusing on the specific particular details. And so we've gone through four out of the five. Uh, we've gone through wrestling with troubling texts, a proper approach to Old Testament scripture. We've looked at covenant. And yesterday we looked uh, more at law. And today we'll touch on the fifth one, missional, missional emphasis. Uh, we'll wrap up our discussion on priestly theology and conclude with some brief remarks on big picture number five. We said yesterday that in priestly theology, 
we learn of the awesomeness of Yahweh's presence. And there's a tension uh, in scripture between God's transcendence, meaning his amazing otherness, and and, uh, his imminence, meaning his incredible nearness. Uh, Because Yahweh chooses to live with his people, this great and awesome God that we have chooses to be with us. So there's always going to be this tension you'll come across, not just in Old Testament, but all the way through between the transcendence and the imminence of God. For this to happen, for God to dwell with us, we've learned here in priestly theology that there has to be divinely appointed mediation. There is a need for a particular place, such as the tabernacle, various pieces of furniture. There's the need for a priesthood, a sacrificial system, and ritual laws. But all of these things function together to establish the proper boundaries that make dwelling or the dwelling of Yahweh with the people of God to be a source of inexpressible blessing. This enables Israel to draw near to Yahweh's presence without danger or fear. The scholar Terence Frethon notes that from the beginning of Exodus to now, when you're going through the book, we see that the book moves from Israel's bondage to Pharaoh to Israel's bonding with its ancestral God. It moves from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh. And it's also interesting, he points out, and that it's interesting that the book moves from the enforced construction of buildings for Pharaoh to the glad and obedient offering of a building for the worship of Yahweh. As followers of Jesus today, like Israelites of old, we're privileged to be in relationship with God. And this entails responsibility. This brings us to the importance of having a missional emphasis. God wills to be known, and not only by his people, but by all people. As Christopher Wright says, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. So for those this morning who need to step off the call and go about their day, I just want to encourage you to reflect on this particular thought throughout the day. If God wills to be known to all people, and he is actively carrying out his mission in the world right now, how does he want me to participate? For those that need to go, God bless you. You've been blessed. Now go and be a blessing. As I've shared for the past three days, the specific resources I've used, uh, just really quickly, uh, some of the the main ones have been my personal notes and uh, the textbook from my Old Testament seminary professor, John Kessler, his book, The Old Testament Theology, Divine Call and Human Response. Um, Once again, I rely very heavily, at least in this uh, section of the teaching, I rely very heavily on a lot of these scholarly essays found 
in the uh, Bible Dictionary of Old Testament um, Pentateuch. Also been using Sandra Richter's book, The Epic of Eden, and another one that I've relied on heavily for today in terms of missional emphasis is by the scholar Christopher Wright uh, called The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. Uh, it's, a, it's another one of those massive monographs, uh, but it's such a powerful read. If, if uh, you ever feel so inclined, you would reap so much reward and benefit from going through Christopher Wright's material. So I give full credit to these individuals and their work and the amazing research that they've done and all the writing they've done. I'll put uh, all of that information in the notes that will get posted as well for you. I apologize that we've not had enough time to read through each of the chapters together uh, verse by verse, and hopefully you've been able to do that throughout the days when we haven't been able to cover Exodus 27 and 28 from yesterday and chapters 29 and 30 for today's reading. All of these chapters are still part uh, of the key texts that we find in priestly theology. Exodus 27, uh, you would have read yesterday about the bronze altar and the court of the tabernacle and oil for the lamp. Chapter 28 goes into great detail about the garments for the priests. Uh, today, chapters 29 and 30 uh, deal with the consecration of the priests. And then chapter 30 is about the altar of incense, um, the bronze basin, the anointing oil and incense. Um, and if we don't get to reading it today, again, my apologies, and hopefully we'll make some, some comments this morning that'll help you with the framework as you do read through it on your own afterwards. Um, so unfortunately, even though we can't comment on everything going on in these chapters, we will try to offer some general observations about the tabernacle today and some of the various pieces of furniture, some of the key pieces. Uh, a few comments about the priesthood uh, and their function and their garments. Sandra Richter suggests that understanding the tabernacle and then later on the temple is very important to grasp, to grasp rather. She states, I quote, in fact, the New Testament writers constantly use the tabernacle, its functions, its furniture, its staff, the decorations, the floor plan, all of that, that they constantly use these things to explain our faith to us. So understanding the form and function of the tabernacle is vital for us to catch the meaning of our New Testament. So as you're going through these chapters, pay careful attention. There's so much that can be gleaned. Um, let's just read. I know we read it yesterday, but it's worth rereading. In Exodus chapter 25, this is from a couple of days ago, chapter 25, and verse 8 says, and have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. Now, flip over a few chapters forward to chapter 29. And in verses 45 and 46, it says, I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. 
I am Yahweh, their God. So we see here more than once the emphasis of Yahweh to Moses, to the people saying that he will dwell among them. He wants to be with them. In that first portion of chapter 25, verse 8, that's our purpose statement. So that this is why all these things are being done. And so Sandra Richter says this, the so that in this passage is critical because it lets us know that God's purpose in instituting the tabernacle was so that he might live among his people. And notice here how Yahweh chooses to live. He chooses to live as his people live. Since the Israelites are dwelling in tents, he too will dwell in a tent. And then, of course, when they get into the promised land, when Israel becomes a sedentary people, Yahweh, too, shifts his residence to a temple and becomes more sedentary as well. End quote. We mentioned yesterday that priestly theology gives specific attention as well to the organization of space. And you may recall that we, we, we highlighted three different zones, each increasing in holiness. J.E. Hartley observes that in correspondence to these three gradations of holiness, the construction materials become more costly and they exhibit a higher quality of workmanship as you move from the outer court into the Holy of Holies. So this is really fascinating. So just we can't get into all of it, but just a couple of examples. You'll notice in the outer court that the furniture is made of copper. And as you progress into the inner court, into the Holy of Holies, you're now dealing with pure gold. In fact, for the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat itself, or better interpreted, the atonement cover, which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, it was made of solid gold. Also as well, the curtains, the curtains of the tabernacle were finely woven out of the finest materials, uh, dyed blue and purple. Uh, which would convey a real sense of elegance and majesty. Blue and purple, in fact, were the most expensive colors available, and they were associated uh, usually with royalty and power. And uh, C. Van Dam brings out that point in his essay. J.E. Hartley, going back to that uh, essay, says, farther from the Holy of Holies, the materials used for these, even for the curtains, were made out of a pattern weave. And the, as you get further away in the, uh, in the other veil, it was just a plain weave that was used. So even in, in the art and the, and the craftsmanship, you see a difference. The closer you get to the Holy of Holies towards where Yahweh will be. So there was this beautiful emphasis done uh, through the architecture and through materials and this whole surrounding visual experience. Just a, a, free brief, a few brief remarks about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was located in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It was the only piece of furniture there. Its design was very elegant and artful. R.E. Averbeck observes that it was the most important piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle. The cover on top of the Ark, as I just mentioned, a lot of people call it the mercy seat, but uh, the Hebrew word used there is, actually means to make atonement. So in a lot of the scholars refer to it as the atonement seat. And it was overshadowed by two gold cherubim. 
According to Leviticus 16, verse 2, Yahweh said to Moses, I will appear in the cloud over the atonement seat. So he was able to make clear to Aaron that the high priest must not enter there except only once a year on the day of atonement. And the ark, as you may recall, is also the depository for the two stone tablets of the law that are being given to Moses. And you'll draw that similarity to Old Testament covenants that were familiar in the ancient Near East, that that was the place where you would put the stipulations of the covenant, the contract, you would place it there in the sacred temple of the God. And for the Israelites, it would be for Yahweh. And they did the same thing. Another piece of furniture I'd like to just mention is the table of presence. R.E. Averbeck continues to, to speak about this piece of furniture as well and notes that this table was the place where the bread of presence would be placed. It was continually displayed before the Lord. In Exodus 25, verse 30, uh, there's more written there about it. There were daily provisions for the lighting of the lampstand, and there was weekly provisions for the bread on the table. Uh, there's more information on this as well when you get into Leviticus. Well, I won't get, get into all of that now. Uh, there were to be 12 loaves arranged in two rows on the table, six to a row, or perhaps six, uh, sorry, stacks of six each. The frankincense that was spread on, the, on these loaves made them a soothing fragrance of offering to Yahweh, probably representing the 12 tribes of Israel standing in the presence of Yahweh. So the bread was replaced every week uh, on the Sabbath, and the week old bread was then consumed by the priests. They would eat it, and you'll find that out in that when you get further into Leviticus. Uh, so that piece of furniture was not in the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place. And now we also have a, a second piece of furniture. There was three total. And the second one was the golden lampstand. Quoting from R.E. Averbeck states, the lampstand was a six-branched menorah made of pure hammered gold. And the, the seventh branch actually was an extension of the central shaft. And it stood across the holy place on the south side from the table, which was on the north side. And it is significant that at the end of the lampstand section, as you're reading that in Exodus, you'll see this pattern. The pattern command gets reiterated where Yahweh says, see and make them. That is the lampstand, the lamps and all the utensils that go with it. See and make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Exodus 25, verse 40, and you can cross-reference uh, verse 9, and also in Numbers chapter 8, verse 4. But this verbal description of this pattern is such that it's difficult to imagine exactly what the lampstand looked like. So seeing it on the mountain for Moses was necessary for its construction. So, for example, no specific dimensions are given in the text. Unlike the earlier prescriptions for the ark and for the table. So having that visual uh, of it was very important. The major utilitarian function of the lampstand was to shed light in the holy place. And its shape was actually like a stylized tree. It had a symbolic significance. The lampstand, therefore, is, is like stylized tree of life. And we'll come back to that. 
R.E. Averbeck, again, I'm, I'm continuing, a lot of what I'm sharing is from his essay, so this is all being quoted from him. Averbeck also makes an interesting observation where he says the combination, and I love this, the combination of the daily lighting of the lampstand and the associated burning of incense, plus the bread constantly being on the table impresses one with the fact that Yahweh has truly taken up residence in the tabernacle. If there is a lamp burning, incense burning, bread on the table, then someone is home. Yahweh is there. The tabernacle presence of God is one more thing I want to mention. R.E. Averbach, again, in talking about the tabernacle presence of God, the subject of Yahweh's presence with humanity is an important theme right from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1 to 4, from when we see creation and then the corruption of heaven and earth, right through to the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, where it's recreation and then a purity of a purifying of the new heaven and earth. The tabernacle became a medium through which Yahweh in his true presence would travel from the mountain of God, Sinai, to accompany and guide Israel from there to the promised land. The tabernacle was, therefore, a sort of movable Sinai. The purpose for building the tabernacle was to provide this place for Yahweh to continue dwelling amidst his people after they left Sinai. Wherever the tabernacle was, Yahweh would be. He would be present in all of his glory, just as he had been at Sinai. The difference between the tabernacle and the later temple was that the former was mobile, uh, and as a tent should be, while the latter was not. And there were both, they were both points of access to God's continuous manifest presence in the midst of his people. But neither of them, neither the tent nor the temple, is presented as a way to which God would limit his presence exclusively. They were special places to certainly meet his presence. But you're also going to find, as you're going through the Old Testament, there's also a whole traditional stream of theology that describes the divine accessibility of Yahweh anywhere at any time. And so when we read portions like that, they kind of come into conflict with what we think of the temple as the tabernacle, that Yahweh's presence is only there. But again, there's many different streams flowing through the Old Testament. They don't all say the same thing. So when we let the priestly theology have its voice, it, it it focuses on the specific presence of Yahweh in the tent or in the temple. Uh, for the sake of time, we'll have to move on here. Uh, let me mention one more thing about uh, the tabernacle and creation. There's been a, a great deal of scholarly attention paid to the, the, the correspondences between the creation account of Genesis 1 to 4 and the tabernacle construction that we're reading about here in Exodus. R.E. Averbach gives a couple of examples where the garden really was seen as this ideal sanctuary within which Yahweh would be present with his people and walk with them. And of course, we just observed that's the whole point of the tabernacle. So there's a corresponding there. Another example is that Yahweh stationed cherubim 
east of the Garden of Eden to guard the entrance to it. You read that in Genesis 3, verse 24. That corresponds to the two cherubim that form uh, the covering for the atonement seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the cherubim designs that are woven into the veil or the canopy curtains that separate the most holy place within, uh, which the, within which the Ark, Yahweh's presence, was, was housed. And it would separate it, um, that veil would separate it from the holy place. And the fact that the entrance of the tabernacle also faced toward the east. One last example is the tree of life in the garden that we read about in Genesis. And it corresponds with the tabernacle menorah, the lampstand, which not only provided light in the holy place, but it was uh, probably conceived of as a stylized tree of life. So there were all of these links to remind them that once again, Yahweh's sanctuary, his presence is to dwell with humankind. Just a few remarks about the priests and uh, priesthood. R.K. Duke states, the Israelite priesthood was a religious institution within which certain people were given particular and often exclusive rights, roles and responsibilities as mediators between the divine and human realms. J.E. Hartley also notes, parallel to the beauty and elegance of the Holy of Holies, the high priest's garments were all also very regal, uh, purple, woven out of fine linen, adorned with gold, having 12 precious stones set into the breastplate, uh, as well as the emphasis on holiness at the sanctuary was reinforced by the word holy that was engraved in a gold plate fastened to the high priest's turban with a blue lace. The majestic adornment of the high priest honored and praised God uh, before whom he was ministering on behalf of the people. Um, something I just want to add is, is that I hope you're picking up here how craftsmanship and art and fashion and architecture, all of these things are means by which, tangible means by which people can get a sense of, of the nearness of the presence of God, as well as his holiness. And just to encourage you, no matter what your line of work, no matter what you do for your vocation, for a living, it can be used to bring glory and honor to God. See what you do as your calling as God's calling in your life and use that as an expression of worship and praise to God as the surrounding world watches the witness of your life through what you do. The scholar C. Van Dam adds, it is indicative of the high priest's holiness that his garments were made of the same basic material as the curtains of the tabernacle. And the blue of his robe matched the blue covering of the ark that was used when it was traveling. You'll read about that later on in Numbers. Also, the glory of the tabernacle was reflected in the splendor um, of the high priestly's dress. The high priestly dress. The high priest was thus equipped to be in God's presence and to mediate between Yahweh and his people in the most holy place. I'm going to have to skip a few things here just pay attention to time uh, perhaps we'll transition now and we'll just make some 
closing remarks on our fifth and final big picture issue. Sorry for the sudden shift here, uh, but just wanna be respectful of time. The last big picture issue is missional emphasis. We have said that Yahweh wills to be known among his people and to dwell with them. But it is equally imperative to understand that he also wills to be known among the nations. The story is not only about Israel. Now, we know this emphasis that we re are reading seems to be focused only on them. But the careful uh, student of scripture will notice, and this is right from the start, that there is a beautiful theology of the nations all throughout the Old Testament. And, it, and I want to emphasize that in case you, you haven't noticed it, um, or in case you've maybe downplayed it and you've maybe elevated Israel over the nations. I love what Christopher Wright says. Consider the broader perspective that Yahweh has in mind, especially in Exodus. And Christopher Wright says the motivation from God's point of view was not only the liberation of its enslaved people, but this driving divine will to be known to all nations for who and what he truly is. The mission of God to be known is what drives the whole Exodus narrative. I, I love the way Terence Fretheim describes one of the key themes in Exodus is about the knowledge of God, coming to know who Yahweh is. And you'll remember at the beginning of the book, I believe it was in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh doesn't know who Yahweh is. And he asks the question, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And God, we see that God speaks and he acts in order to show the people and not just the Israelites, but all people, the Egyptians, the Israelites, everybody, that they would all come to know the answer to Pharaoh's question. Most basically, God speaks and acts so that Israel may know his name. Moreover, this knowledge is to be passed on to their children and to their grandchildren. And the knowledge of God is expanded to embrace everyone, especially, and, and this may surprise some, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you can go back and reread the text in uh, the earlier parts of Exodus. And not only the Egyptians, but we also see highlighted the Midianites as well. You know, we, we read about Jethro and the Midianites. They come to know and to confess the truth of who Yahweh is. So we see Christopher Wright is pointing out that, or sorry, Terence Fretheim here, that God's concern for self-disclosure is expanded to include the whole world. Uh, Reread Exodus 9, verse 16, and that point really comes through. Um, as an aside, uh, I'll just note Isaiah chapter 19, verses 19 to 25. Take time to read it. This is a beautiful passage of scripture where God restores Egypt. And he includes them with his called people. Egypt will ultimately recognize Yahweh along with Israel and with Assyria. Now think about that. Egypt, the Egyptians and the Assyrians were two of the most powerful empires that oppressed the Israelites throughout their history. And yet both of those places, along with Israel, will all come to know and worship Yahweh together. It says in Isaiah 19, they will know and worship him. So Yahweh has specific plans and for the Egyptians and the Assyrians. And he calls, he even calls the Egyptians, my people. 
So we should never allow God's election of us to lead us to exclusivity and privileged status. We should always understand the ultimate purpose and goal is it's the vehicle through which God intends to bless all the other nations. In Exodus 19, oh my goodness, I'm two minutes over. Can I beg your indulgence for just two more minutes? Okay, remember Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. It's talking about um, Israel being a royal priesthood. Paul Williamson keenly observes, God will make Israel unique among the nations, and they will be his special treasure and a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. However, to be set apart by Yahweh as his special treasure is not an end in itself. But it is a means to a much greater end. Thus understood, the goal of the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant at Sinai, is the establishment of a special nation through whom Yahweh can make himself known to all families of the earth. Christopher Wright, he says, the one living God wills to be known throughout his whole creation. The world must come to know its creator. The nations must know who their ruler and their judge and their savior is. This is a major subplot of the book of Exodus. And later on, there are further recollections of that great event that are repeatedly highlighted that the prime purpose was to make a great name for Yahweh among the nations. There's references in the book of Joshua, 2 Samuel, in Psalms, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in Nehemiah, over and over again. The Exodus then establishes, Christopher Wright says, a paradigmatic link between God's particular identity as the God of Israel and God's purpose of universal self-revelation to the nations. The whole history of Israel, we might say, is intended to be the shop window for the knowledge of God in all the earth. This is the reason the story needs to be retold from one generation to another. This perspective of God's heart for the nations ought to permeate our own thinking. As Christians, we should never allow our belief in election to lead us to some attitude of exclusive privileged status that gives us some sort of superiority over others. This is the very kind of attitude that Jesus himself rejected. And we see his own heart and passion, even though his calling was to his own people within Jerusalem, excuse me, within Galilee and Judea, he never turned away those from the, the, the Roman centurion, the Syrophoenician woman, any Gentile who came to him, he still ministered to them, showing his heart for the nations. If the creator and covenant God, Yahweh, wills to be known and to save his human creature, then this should give us an extremely positive attitude and a hopeful optimism toward all people and an encouragement that God is actively working to reconcile all people to himself. Our goal as a community of faith is to follow God and to participate in his mission. This begins right where you currently are, in your home, in your family, in your place of employment, in your neighborhood, 
in your place of recreation. So wherever you live, work, shop, play, and go, collectively, we have a significant part to play in God's mission. More specifically, you have a significant and specific part to play in God's mission. God invites all of us to participate, and he's inviting you today to participate. What will be your response? Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.